Renew, restore, and revive. Well, good morning again. I know you feel like you've already seen me because you have, because both Bill and Tucker are spending time with family today away, and so uh, if anything goes wrong, uh, it's Francis's fault. So call her on Monday and tell her. She would love to talk to you. <laughs> Happy New Year's Eve. Years ago, I came across a study. I, I love just kind of increasing knowledge about things that I know very little about, not to pretend I know something about it, but just to expand my own breadth of knowledge. And I came across a fascinating study that talked about what happens to the human brain as we age. Uh, and the study was talking about this neurological shift in the cognitive center of gravity in our brains. And so if you're at all aware of how our brains function, there's, you know, the right brain, and you hear people talk about right brain people and left brain people. The right side of our brain is the locus of logic on imagination. It's where we kind of dream. It's where uh, all the um, kind of abstract ideas come from. The left side of our brain is the locus of logic, of the, the factual black and white squared in corner kind of thoughts that we have. The significance of this study, though, was that at some point, most of us stop living out of the right side of our brain and stay in the left side. We quit dreaming. We stop living out of imagination and strictly rely on logic. We stop creating a future for ourselves and start repeating the past. We stop dreaming and we start living as if the purpose of life is simply to arrive safely and quickly at death. And I don't say that tongue-in-cheek. It, it seems, after I, I read this through this study, it seemed very true of a lot of the people that I had met, that at some point their dreams had been imagined. It was a past tense. And that they no longer thought towards the future except waiting on the inevitable. The problem with that is the day we stop dreaming is the day we start dying. Proverbs chapter 29, verse 18, Without a vision, the people perish. So this capacity to dream, this ability to imagine, it's a part of the image of God. It's hardwired into our brains from the moment that we are stitched into being. There's the old saying, show me the size of your dream and I will show you the size of your God. God-sized dreams are natural. In fact, maybe even supernatural to the church because it is a product of the spirit-filled life. We need a vision for our future. And I think you hear that in churches, especially around New Year's, and you think, all right, here's the vision for our church for 2024, and that's not what I wanted to share with us this morning, because I think I've been a little bit more convicted lately about my own vision for my own life and the revival that I need within the constructs of who I am, of who God created me to be. It's a word, revive, that isn't revival, that isn't specifically found in Scripture, but we hear it a lot in connection to the, the bigger church in general. And there's a reason behind that, and that's because of the definition of the word. Because by definition, revival does happen throughout Scripture. There are detailed instances in the lives of God's people where sudden and surprising God-centered changes happen. Whether it's called an awakening or a renewal or a reformation or a revival, there were times throughout biblical history where God who normally worked in ordinary ways, 
had chosen to work in extraordinary ways. And there's clear and comprehensive examples where we see how it happened, how God made it happen. And one of those biblical revivals came during the reign of King Josiah. And I just want to share this briefly this morning because I think it's important to see that maybe it's not what we've always heard the term to be. There was a, a, a huge event that happened this year on Asbury University's campus. And you hear them referred to as awakenings. This one was called the Asbury Revival. And it was an ongoing period of worship that lasted over a week, 24 hours a day, where people were in their chapels singing and praising God. And uh, that's great. That's wonderful. In and of itself, that's an amazing thing. But what does it lead to? Revival is not limited to a moment. It is what spurs on what is coming and how we got there to begin with. When you look at the reign of King Josiah, it's around 640 BC, and Judah was in bad shape. There were some good years with King Hezekiah, but then the nation declined for the next 55 years under King Manasseh. And the next two years under Ammon weren't any better. He did evil in the sight of the Lord. He did what just as his father had done. He served idols and worshipped them. The country looked bleak. God's people were languishing. There wasn't much to cheer about. But God, by a sudden surprising work of his spirit, brought reformation and breathed new life into his people. We see this in first King, or Second Kings, sorry, chapters 21 through 23. God gave renewal to Judah like a true revival, and it was marked by distinguishing characteristics. The, the revivals that we see in Scripture, it was a rediscovering of the Word of God. For them, a very literal rediscovering. They had lost it, and it was found, and it was read from to all the people. There was, and then there became this renewed and restored sense of reverence to God, that when God draws near, the nearness of His presence produces profound reverence and awe because of who He is and what, what He is that we are not. There was... In chapter 22, confession and repentance and renewed spiritual commitment for people who did not even know who God was. But finally, in chapter 23, we see what appears to be, at least in this instance, the key to revival. When revival comes to a church or to a community, and specifically here, we see people, brace yourself, actually live the way they talked. It changed their lives. They start to live the words they profess. Instead of blending into their cultural surroundings, God's people stand out. They return to God and reform their ways. They pursue faithfulness to the word and not to the world around them. And I think the new year is a pretty good time to look at ourselves and ask, what are we doing? Are we living like we profess we believe? Are we living like by the accords that we talk about here on Sunday mornings? Or is it something else entirely? Do we need to turn back to God? Do we need to draw near to Him? Do we re need to rediscover what the Word should be doing in our lives? To draw nearer than we ever have to a God who loves us like we've never been loved before. For us, a good place to start, I think, this morning, and this is where we're going to be, if you want to turn in your Bibles, is Acts chapter 2. It's the day of Pentecost. This is when and where we see revival happen for, for the early church. But 
you look ahead even out of Acts chapter 2 and you can look ahead to chapter 13 and there's a tipping point there. This is when God turns the church in Antioch inside out and then they in turn turn their world upside down. You can go on to chapter 17 and in Athens, Paul walks into the Areopagus and instead of cursing the darkness around him, these learned people that were around him, he lights a candle. Meaning he competes for truth with truth. Not by demeaning anyone else for what they believe, but by sharing truth and letting its light stand on its own. So in Acts chapter 2, it's the day of Pentecost. We are 50 days out at this point from the crucifixion and the resurrection, right before the ascending to the right hand of the Father. And Jesus says, just wait. Wait for what? Wait for the promise of the Holy Spirit. This thing that is going to ignite the early church. So they climb the stairs to the upper room. It's just a handful of disciples, a remnant of 120 people, but they pray for 10 days. Now, when we hear Pentecost, we often don't think of the festival of feasts, which is what Pentecost was. It's a, it's a Jewish holiday. It's on, the, on their calendar. But for us, Pentecost is this. This is the day of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit miraculously fell and the world changed. You can't plan for that. You don't know when it's going to happen. But one of the things that we can do as the church to prepare the way for what God is going to do is to not sit on our hands and wait, but to till the soil. To make sure that it's ready, that people around us are ready to receive. This morning in a lot of our Bible classes, we talked about John the Baptist and about his role in what was to come. That, that he played, he was, he was tilling the ground. He was preparing the hearts and souls, those who would listen for the Christ that was to come. Revival happens on God's terms and on God's timeline, but there are things we can do to kind of set the table. And if we pray like those disciples did, with that kind of consistency and intensity and priority, Pentecost is going to happen. Augustine said it like this. He said, if you pray like it depends on God, but you work like it depends on you. We continue to have faith, but we don't sit and wait. We prepare the way. God is going to show up when we as God's people are living that way. Revival is inevitable. And that same spirit that raised Christ from the dead dwells within us. This revival that started in the upper room started with prayer. I think oftentimes we're waiting on a nation to revive us through policies and politics. But biblical revival starts with a remnant of people whose hearts are willing to turn back to the cross before anything else. Who are willing to pay the price. It's a long story of what happened that day of Pentecost, far too much for one sermon. But in Acts chapter 20, verses 5 through 8, I'll just read this. It's not going to be on the screen. It says, They were staying in Jerusalem, God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. And when they heard the sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment because each one heard their own language being spoken. Utterly amazed, they said, Aren't those who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that each of us hears them in our native language? Jerusalem was filled with faithful Jews from all over the world who had traveled there to observe Passover and due to the proximity of the feasts had stayed there. <coughs> Excuse me. It's important to note that many of the people who were there probably had been witness to the trial and crucifixion of Jesus that occurred around Passover. And now God, through the Holy Spirit, was giving these people a miraculous sign. 
It also surprised them that as Galileans, who had a reputation for being uneducated, were speaking their own languages so fluently. In fact, we see in Acts chapter 20, 15 different nationalities laid out in front of them. Those disciples that were speaking in what we read as tongues, but what were most certainly languages, spoken perfectly to the people who knew those languages, languages they never learned. There were Jewish pilgrims from all over the ancient world in Jerusalem, and they start preaching the good news to 15 different ethnicities. From the very beginning, the church was multilingual, multicultural, Every tribe and every nation will surround the throne and people worship him. Number one this morning on your outlines is this, that Pentecost is an opportunity for all people. All people. They started speaking languages they've never heard, just as we read. And the people then were this, though. They were amazed and perplexed. I know this to be true about God because I realize the older I get, so little I understand about him. And that is this. If we aren't willing to be perplexed and confused, then we will never be amazed. If we are willing to let God be bigger than the constraints we placed on him to make him look, act, sound, and feel like us, then we will never be amazed by the glory and wonder that he holds. God works in strange and mysterious ways, but here's what we want to do. We want to fit God into the logical constraints of our left brain. Square, encased. We want to create God in our image. But if we do that, God can never surprise us, astonish us, overwhelm us, or transcend us. We end up with a God whose limitations start and end where ours do. A.W. Tozer said it like this. He said, a low view of God is the cause of a hundred lesser evils, but a high view of God is a solution to 10,000 temporal problems. When we hold God where he belongs... We can't help but be in awe. Acts chapter 2, verses 16 and 17. No, this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. In the last days, God said, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will see dreams. When the Holy Spirit showed up here... Racism, sexism, and ageism are all mentioned in the negative. And this isn't, by the way, this isn't a, a, an NIV translation thing. This isn't an ESV translation thing. Go back and look at an interlinear Bible to the exact definitions of the words. Sons and daughters are the words that are used. Men and women will prophesy in your name. Young men, old men. I will pour out my spirit on which people? All people. Different cultures. We all have one thing in common though, and that is this, that we are created in the image of God. Pentecost is equal opportunity for all people. See, at Bethlehem, which we have talked about last week, Bill did a wonderful job of bringing us back to that moment. At Bethlehem, God is with us. God is poured into this world in the form of a child, Jesus. At Calvary, Jesus becomes the substitution for us, the sacrifice that was needed. He is for us. He is on our behalf. But at Pentecost, God is in us. The Spirit, we are, we are given 
the gift of the Spirit. We see the Spirit and what it does. And Jesus knew when talking to his disciples that the, that the Holy Spirit is what we needed. He said, I have to go. I need to go. Because what is coming is what you need. It is, in fact, the exact words he uses are, it is to your benefit that I leave. So that the advocate, the Holy Spirit, would come to us. I have this sneaking suspicion about what we pray for and the, spec- the specificities of what we pray for. I need more love in my life. I need my heart to break for the lost and the broken people. That's, I do too. I need more joy in my life. I need the ability to see good in, in, in bad situations. I'm, I'm looking for peace in the life. Do you know what you're looking for and what I'm looking for? We're looking for the fruit of the Spirit in our life. We're looking for love Joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, self-control. We are looking to see the fruit of the Spirit in our lives when we say those are the things we need. So this morning, four things that we all need as we start a new year. Not that anything is specifically special about New Year's Eve or New Year's Day. It's another day on the calendar. Well, not, not in my family. New Year's Day is special because my eldest becomes a teenager tomorrow. But other than that, still just a day on the calendar. He won't be any taller, even though he wishes he would be. But it is a time for a lot of people to practice self-reflection, like Eric was sharing with us, the other Eric was sharing with us this morning. To look at our lives and to evaluate ourselves. Are we who we want to be? But more importantly than that, are we who God is calling us to be? So the first one is this. Revival starts here. Revival happens from the inside out. It starts with me. It starts with you. It starts with individuals. Not with the church, not with a scheduled gathering. And so I come back to that baggage-laden definition of the word revival. (coughs) I just realized I'm coughing into the mic. I should go the other way. That we were used to. It's not not a sermon. It's not a a, a gathering for under a tent outside. We can call those revivals, but that's not the definition of biblical revival. It's not an extra worship service. It's not singing louder or longer. And again, there's nothing wrong with those things. Those are good things that can bring us closer in our relationship with God. But biblical revival happens when our hearts are changed and we move forward with that. It's knowing our need for God so much, our desperation for Him and our full being If you've ever fasted, practiced biblical fasting, scriptural fasting, to try and see what that experience is like, that hunger pain that you go through, not just when you haven't had lunch and it's 3 o'clock, but when you haven't had lunch in three days, that's the kind of yearning that we were created to have for our Creator Because here's the thing, if all we're focused on is ourselves and what we want and what we can get out of life and what life has to offer us, and we we tag all those same things to a church. Well, this is what we can do for you here, and this is what we can do for you here. If we are completely full of ourselves, there is no room for God. God can't fill me if I'm full of myself. If I'm completely focused on me and not those around me, not the life of my brothers and sisters... If I, don't, if I can't make that decision from the inside out to this is who I want to be, there's no, we don't leave any room for God. Number two, revival can be 
and is unique to each of us. We're all different numbers on the Enneagram. We're all different letters on the Myers-Briggs. We're introverts and extroverts, thinkers and feelers. Uh, we're Patrick Lencioni, six working geniuses, seven Howard Gardner, seven kinds of smart. There's all these different ways that we try to classify who we are and explain us to other people. You know, I'm an Enneagram six, wing four. Well, that's great. So what? What do you do with that? How are you a healthy six? Because there's very unhealthy threes. And if you don't know what an Enneagram is, and you probably don't care, so that's fine. It's very old. It helps you understand yourself. That's all it does. Sort of like any of them. But then once you understand yourself, what do you do with it? There is no, there is no perfect little map for this is how to experience revival in your life because you and I are not in the same place. And that's why it is unique to each of us. There are a lot of different kinds of revival, <coughs> see, other side, that we see in the Bible. There's a revival of courage in Esther chapter 5. There's a revival of humility in Isaiah chapter 7. A revival of worship in Acts chapter 13. A revival of miracles in Acts chapter 19. A revival of what we would call first love in Revelation chapter 2. And a revival of joy in Nehemiah 8. Those are in your outline if you want to go back and look at any of those. But the question is, if you'd be willing to ask this of yourself, in what area of my life do I need revival? I need revival, but Lord, what kind? What areas of my life have I perhaps pushed you out that I don't, have not left any room for you anymore that you need to still be the center of? Number three, revival... Biblical revival is set off, it is begun by consecration. That's a really churchy word. So let's look at it real quickly, Old Testament style. Leviticus chapter 2, verses 7 and 8 say this, Consecrate yourselves and be holy, because I am the Lord your God. Keep my decrees and follow them. I am the Lord. And this is what's really important when defining consecration. Who makes you holy. Verse 8, I am the Lord who makes you holy. That is the word consecrate. It means to declare justified, to declare sacred. Do you know what it is when you give your life to the Lord that God has done in you? Do we? He has consecrated us. He has made us holy through Christ. To sanctify, to purify, to set something apart For a special purpose. Taking something out of common use. And to forfeit it to the sanctuary. This is set apart for the Lord. In other words, God says you're mine. At the bottom of your outline you'll see a quote from a former prime minister of the Netherlands. But he's also a theologian, Abraham Kuyper. And he says it like this. There's not a square square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ who is sovereign and overall, does not cry, mine. We don't give the Lord a piece of our life. At least we shouldn't. Oftentimes we do, though. And yet it is not a piece of our life that the Lord demands. It's all of it. Consecration starts with the recognition that all is from God and all is for God. We live on borrowed time. We live on borrowed death. We live on borrowed money. 
Consecration is then, in fact, going all in with God. It's submitting our life, our time, our talent, and those things that we treasure. Our past, our present, and our future. Paul said it like this in Galatians chapter 2, verse 20, in his letter to the church. He said, I've been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life that I now have, I live in the body. I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. We live completely by faith that Jesus is exactly who he said he was and continues to be. And our lives are his and his alone. Number four this morning. If you read my bulletin article on the back on Friday, you probably can guess what goes here. And if you didn't, when you got the wire, then you're normal. It's fine. But number four, and this is the role we play in revival, is that it is sustained by spiritual discipline. We're not looking for revival that's something that gets us excited for a month or a quarter, which is oftentimes what our New Year's resolutions do. The best videos out there this time of year are the people that make the New Year's resolution to go to the gym more often. Will knows that. He smiled right when he said that. This, people like don't know how to use the machines. They're laying on their back on something. They should be rowing. They, but then the gyms are full. And Planet Fitness is making money, money, money. Go on February 1st. You can have the whole place to yourself. It's because it's hard. It's difficult, and it requires consistency. That's what spiritual disciplines do in our life. Not that they are hard, but they require consistency. It it creates consistency in our relationship with God. The The only ceiling on our intimacy with God is the amount that we are willing to put into it. It's not rocket science. Revival is just back to the basics of faith, doubling down on our spiritual disciplines. And somehow through all of that, like we saw in the reign of King Josiah, God does what God's going to do. First Timothy chapter 4, verse 5, and this is not going to be up there. It's just, just for our benefit. For everything God created is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. Because it is consecrated by the word of God, so it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. We've got to get into God's word to get it into us. It doesn't happen by osmosis, where if we sleep on it, it it works its way in. To know God's will for the life of his followers, you actually have to see what he says. It isn't accidental to understand those kind of things. This, and just as an aside, Bill had initially asked me, and I'm sure he is streaming this morning, to announce that he had three Bibles left for his daily Bible reading through the year uh, this morning, but he doesn't anymore. Keith Chandler got the last couple of them. Sorry, you know, it's fine. If you need one, you can talk to Bill. He can put in another order. But a daily Bible reading plan is a good place to start. But it's not the answer. It gives us information. So what do we do with the holy word of God? The other thing we see in this, in this passage to the letter to Timothy is, is prayer. <clears throat> prayer is this, the difference between the best that I can do and the best that God can do. Am I fighting for myself or am I allowing God to fight for me? Just letting things happen or taking them before the throne and asking God to make them happen? Prayer is the way we can approach the throne. Back to go a little King James this morning. James chapter 5 verse 16. The effectual prayer of the righteous man availeth much. You don't say availeth much anymore, do you? 
Maybe Wade does. I don't know. But I don't, I don't say availeth all the time. But <clears throat> oftentimes when we read that, we, we push it to the side because it says a righteous man. It's like, well, I'm not righteous. But you know what? You are because God made you that way. You were consecrated. You were made holy through the gift of Jesus on the cross. You were made to be the perfection that you cannot be on your own. God declared us holy. He declared us sacred. He declared us justified. God made him who had no sin become sin for us so that we might become his righteousness. God takes everything bad that we did and through Jesus makes it right. And that righteousness is then transferred into our account so that when our story is read, that's what we see. That's what God sees. Well done, my good and faithful servant. Do you need to experience revival in your life? My guess is you do. Because I know I do. There are, there are places in my life where I struggle to let God in. I try, and then I close the door again. Because I'm not very patient. And oftentimes I'm not very faithful. But it's a reminder, this time of year, when new things are on the horizon, God wants every part of our lives to be open to him, every door opened as if he doesn't already know what's behind them to begin with. Everything laid bare, every piece of our brokenness given to him and allowed to be made whole. And then by the things that we practice, our spiritual disciplines, our time in the word, our prayer, our time alone, a way to recharge and ponder the wonder and the majesty of God. It's through all of that that we maintain that revival. There's no magic wand. There's no special recipe. It's consistently seeking that relationship with God and letting him be the center of our life. I encourage you to make that a New Year's resolution and to pray specifically for God to open your eyes as I am to what areas that I need more faithfulness, what areas that I need the Spirit to pour more deeply into my life where I can be more faithful to Him. If we can encourage you, if we can pray with you, if we can help you begin that walk of faith for the very first time, you're giving your life to God through the baptism of Jesus, through accepting that gift of wiping the slate clean. To quote the psalmist, to be washed white as snow in the water of baptism, to receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. If we can do any of those things for you as a church this morning, won't you come while we stand and while we sing?